So before I really begin, I, I always start by you know, saying a caveat that might be a bit obvious for this crowd, but I do want to make sure we're all on the same page, which is that when I say data today, what I really mean is digital data. So data that can be stored in computers. And these data are about or from people. So I'll try to make it clear when I'm not talking about data in this way. But otherwise, please assume that when I say data, I do mean digital data about or from people. So uh, today I'll be introducing the, the concept of data U, which is a central concept in my book. And in the book, which I'll draw on today, I argue that international human rights, as they have been designed, are really starting to show their age when we talk about the changes being wrought in our lives by datafication or the rampant creation of data about people. Yet at the same time, I think that human rights offer some of the most widely accepted and I think potent legal, philosophical, and political frameworks with which to think about datafication, which is happening to all of us, whether we like it, know it, or want it. So a lot of people, as a result, have really thought about this idea of data rights. That is, given a world of datafication, we should have rights to or rights over data about us in some way. And data rights are the subject of one of the chapters in my book. So I'll be presenting some of the analytical and practical dilemmas that arise as a result of data you and datafication more generally. As, as our every activity increasingly our thoughts become data that is analyzed by computers, the question of what happens to these data, this data you is ever more pressing. And so the point of today's talk is to think through the possibility of data rights whether we can actually truly claim those rights in terms of ownership, in terms of controlling access or something else entirely. So I wanna start with something more familiar, our bodies, what I call in the book, physical you to distinguish from data you. And here are just some common phrases that populate the Google search when you kind of think about bodies and ownership and whose they are. So pretty should be pretty familiar to everyone. Even Mark Twain had something to say about this um, in his time. And I found this quote very interesting in that it's very political. He brings in the state. Um, and it's an, an important link to human rights, as, as we'll see later. But I think what this quote really does is captures the sentiment of what probably a lot of people think about physical you. It's your body. So in general, while we accept there are certain situations where we might lose control of our bodies, for example, through aging or criminalization or something else like that, we have a certainty about physical you, about our bodies, a security about ourselves that perhaps might be falsely placed certainty, but nonetheless, we have a right to our body in a way that allows us to create space around ourselves, which includes space between you and the state, you and the law, and other people's sentiments and judgments about you as a body and as a person. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the case of American Henrietta Lacks, and there are others like her, but her case should really give us a pause about the certainty with which we might understand our rights as physical you. And there's no good way to do her justice in just a few minutes, because her life and death has left a significant scientific legacy that touches all of us today. Lacks died of an aggressive cervical cancer in 1951, but part of her lives on still to this, to this day as the HeLa cell line. HeLa has been widely recognized for helping achieve modern scientific and medical miracles from countless vaccines, including those used against COVID 
to helping us develop technologies for in vitro fertilization, a technology many of us take for granted today. And although Lax died, the cancer cells that were part of her body are effectively immortal. Lax's contribution to human progress is massive and remained largely unrecognized until Rebecca Sloot's 2010 book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lax. In fact, her name was often misremembered as Helen Lane or Helen Larson, if she was even mentioned at all. Lax is important to the story of data rights in, because her cells were taken without her knowledge, much less consent in the course of her treatment for cancer. Yet those cells, unlike countless others before, lived on in a Petri dish and just kept living. They were part of her body and yet they live on outside of, of her body. Um, nonetheless, a lot of the questions around Gila and around Lax are questions around whether she or her descendants have claim over not just those cells, but the Gila line that arose from those cells and the data about her cells and her DNA um, and some of her family members, which were actually published in, a, in several journal articles. Now, these are the questions that are actually actively being considered in courts as some of her family uh, has recently uh, is it has recently decided to take pharmaceutical companies to court over uh, the sale and production of Gila. More generally, to, to sort of step back from this case, at least in the United States, once a person is separated from their parts, so when a blood sample is taken, or in Lax's case, when cancer cells are taken, those parts are no longer considered you, even though they came from physical you. Um, in the words of one court decision, they're actually considered garbage. So given that there's actually less certainty around ownership around physical you than we usually might think, we shouldn't be surprised then in the context of datafication, a relatively new phenomenon, that there's less certainty around data you. And, this, and, and I argue this needs to be addressed. Now, the ubiquity of digital data are becoming extremely hard to ignore. There are obvious ways in which these data are being collected from social media to online searches and smart devices. And there are also non-obvious ways that perhaps many of us don't see or are just starting to see. Data being collected in our apps, uh, cookies on websites, um, data in our transactions, in, in loyalty, loyalty programs, and in our devices that control our homes. So the datafication of our lives represents a fundamental shift in the world that human beings have occupied previously. These data aren't your body, but they do document facets of you that arguably are just as important as your body, your personality, your thoughts, your preferences, your activities. And these trends have been documented in mass media um, quite a bit, especially recently, and, and all over different fields in academic research. So just you know, a few of the very prominent folks who've talked about this are Shoshana Zuboff, Ron Debert, Marianne Forsad, Siva Vadyanathan, Ruha Benjamin, Safia Noble, Wendy Chun, Kathy O'Neill, Kate Crawford, Jose Van Dyke, and many, many others have demonstrated just how pervasive data collection is and also the power of the systems that have arisen around the collection and analysis of those data. So those data, aren't just about you, they are you. And this is what I'm calling data you in the book. Now, the digital is reality. And it's something that um, poses problems for how we've conceived of our world to date. The other thing is that there's not really an opt out of the digital at this point. 
So, you know, what is the value of, of data you? How can we think about it in this digital world? Well, first of all, I would say that data actually has a mixed record of value in terms of characterization. So on the one hand, these data that are collected on aspects of you are variously called different things like digital trails, digital dust, even digital detritus. The image isn't necessarily one of value, at least this image isn't one of value. And it really takes the human out of the data, who's the human whose behavior generate those data. Yet the data being collected are actually quite revealing of who you are. On the other hand, Data are often also called the new oil. So they clearly have market value. And as Zuboff and Debert have noted, companies are making a killing off collecting and leveraging data collected from people. Um, so more on this analogy later. There's more, I think, to thinking about data um, that is currently missing from these popular conceptions. And that is the intrinsic value of data as you, as a human being. And that is the point of thinking about data you as a, a specific concept. By thinking about data as a core part of each of us, as reflecting a part of our humanity and our identity, we introduce the need to think about changes to the human species as a result of uh, datification. And I argue this calls for corresponding changes in human rights that need to happen. Because human rights are the because datification affects the core concerns of what human rights are concerned with, which is human dignity, human autonomy or freedom, equality, and community, which was originally thought of as the idea of brotherhood. So data you exist, but unlike for physical you, we have yet to think about this in a sort of wide lens way, how datification fundamentally changes our lives as humans. Now we've done a lot of work thinking about individual elements of, of rights so in, in, in the terms of, of individual rights, like how datification affects privacy or datification prevents consent. And increasingly we're thinking about datification's effect on freedom of expression. But not as much has been uh, de dedicated to thinking about our humanity in general, and therefore the need to have rights that correspond with this reality. So, you know, that's all well and good, you might be thinking, but what does this really have to do with human rights? And as I said earlier, human rights are a globally legitimate set of institutions that have been created to protect human dignity and human autonomy, equality, and community. And they're largely to date about regulating state behavior. Now, this is an important uh, task, but what datification does is it sort of adds another layer of challenge to um, how we experience these ideals that human rights are supposed to protect around autonomy, um, dignity, equality, and community. So the massive amounts of data being collected are being analyzed by algorithms to determine what we see online and what we have access to in life, whether that be job opportunities or financial credit or sales on Amazon or getting falsely arrested. And as sociologist Marianne Forsad argues with her colleagues, this datification, this sorting of us within societies is pervasive as increasingly governments and companies stratify us and classify us into categories we may or may not be aware of. These practices are intruding on all of the fundamentals of human rights and can even and can destroy our feelings of community as we've seen with viral misinformation campaigns. So you might be asking, well, 
you know, how is what we face now through datafication different from other situations where people don't have control over the artifacts they produce in life? As academics, we often send our ideas out in the world in the form of papers and presentations. And sometimes those ideas come back at us in ways that we, we don't necessarily recognize. Or, you know, there are plenty of propaganda campaigns before digital technologies. So I, what I see is the big difference between you know, your papers and data about you is that our work, as much as they might define us um, professionally and might even be a very substantial part of you, they're not the entirety of you. And I think by contrast, if we think about the data we produce through our interaction with digital devices, we really are coming closer to being the sum total of you that's being recorded and noted. So your appointment books, your emails, your notes to yourself, your feelings, your fears, what you're searching for, your physical activities. And so data is a manifestation of you in data, which is now increasingly shaping the options that physical you might have. So this is a question of velocity, variety, and volume, as we often think about in terms of big data. And it's also a question of scope and a lack of credible alternatives. What I also wanna say is that thinking about humans as data doesn't necessarily dehumanize us because I think what it does is that it's, it engages with this idea or the reality that humans are increasingly more and more becoming data. And we need to take that seriously if we take the fundamentals about human rights, autonomy, equality, dignity, and community seriously. So what are human rights? I think this is a very this is going to be a very quick review because I think the idea of human rights when you just try to define them can actually get pretty abstract. They've been called the rights one has for being human. They are entitlements for life of human dignity. Um, you know what all these ideas are trying to point to sort of broadly is that we are trying to create institutions that are trying to preserve human agency and the intrinsic value of each person's life as an end, not a means to an end. And what else is important, what stands out to me about human rights is that they tell us about a life we think each human should live, but maybe can't or don't. And these are things we should be able to enjoy that are entitlements and therefore cannot be taken away by anyone, whether that's governments, which is traditionally how we've thought about human rights, or increasingly other entities like corporations. So, um, I'm a political scientist. I work at the international level uh, in, in the subfield called international relations. We tend to focus on the global politics of human rights and what it means, uh, wh which means we look at how people have argued for which rights come into being and why some actually become broadly global and others don't and how they work at the global level. So at the global level, the human rights framework is quite expansive. Um, in addition to the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, or commonly called UDHR, there are nine core UN treaties uh, and a number of optional treaties to those treaties that, um, that are surround human rights. And there are e even more non-binding legal instruments called declarations that define human rights at the global level. In addition to this, uh, you know, looking at the, the framework, Political scientists also see human rights as a, as a political project. So we're looking for the reasoning behind why human rights exist at the global level and their effects on other levels of governance. We want to explain why some rights succeed and have power and others 
don't. So what's currently missing from our global framework on human rights, uh, stuff that Daphna and her co-author Yuval Shini have pointed out, is an effective conception of the human as beyond physical you. We can't really blame the founders of the global human rights regime in 1948 for not knowing what the world would look like in 2022. But I think we can do a better job than to assume that the same analog rights that have been developed in previous decades are simply going to port themselves into a world where data you exists. Okay, so here's, there's a difficulty with doing that. And here's really the problem I see with data that our current human rights framework has yet to grapple with and I think needs to. So data are sticky. This is how I think about it in the book. Typically, the things that you know, we, we think about some of the qualities that make data so useful for us, they're, they're easily copied and transferred. For the economists out there, they're, they're non-rival and only partially excludable goods. So that's kind of what makes them useful. Now, what makes them sticky are four other qualities. And this is what you know, the, the major challenge, I think, to thinking about human rights in, in the context of datafication is going to be. The first is that data are mundane. So the great majority of data simply describe or catalog mundane activities and that they're every day. And so, you know, just things that we do passively and, we you know, we don't think about um, that don't seem special are recorded via our devices, they're being collected across the population, and then being, those mundane sources of data are being used to analyze, categorize, and generate predictions from. Now, I like to quote Cahal Kelly, who's a Globe and Mail sports columnist, but he's written this great memoir in which he talks about the how important mundane things are. He says, quote, the fascinating things about life are the banalities we so rarely discuss amongst ourselves, but that we devote most of our energies to navigating. How'd that, how'd that day you've forgotten look? What did it feel like? Were you lonely? Did you have the sense you were progressing anywhere? Probably not. Yet string a few thousand of them together and that's life. I think the banalities are what is mostly being collected, uh, being turned into data today. The second facet that makes data sticky is, is uh, the fact that they're linked. So the data one organization collects on your activities does not just stay within that company's bounds. And we, you know, the data we generate have social and economic value and data brokers are selling and repackaging data to interested parties. And it's become so cheap to grab data and archive it that, um, you know, it makes sense for nearly everyone to do it and to, to link these data together. Data are also sticky because they're forever. And this is because once datafied, the information about our lives can easily transfer between users. To date, uh, most of the time, it's very difficult to verify the deletion of data. Uh, we don't, even when we close accounts or ask that data be deleted, um, it's, it's hard for us individually to verify that that's happened. Finally, uh, the fourth reason that data are sticky is because they're co-created. And this is an idea I'm gonna be focusing a lot of today's talk on because this really drives the dilemma uh, around data, data rights. So co-creation is the idea that you are the source of data, but someone else is actually interested in collecting that data to begin with. So new data are created through a collaboration between this data collector who is often a company these days, 
and the source of the data, which is you. So without you, there would be no data. But without that company, there would also be no data. And the data collector is a key actualizer of that data creation, because otherwise it would just be the mundane behavior and thoughts we have unrecorded. Now, this characteristic of co-creation poses a practical problem if we want to think in human rights terms about whose data they are. Are they yours because you're the source or are they the companies because they're the creators of that data? Now, it's worth pointing out that the stakes are higher for you than for the data collector because the data being collected reveal aspects of who you are. And having access to data you gives those who have that access tremendous power over knowing who you are and using those data to control possibilities for you going forward. Um, and the data collector, on the other hand, may not care much if you personally drop out because it's the aggregation of data that reveal important information and create the value. Um, but the fact remains, it's very difficult to drop out of the digital world. This power imbalance makes data inherently political and why it's important to think about uh, the political aspects of data creation. So in other words, Given that the, the digital world is exceedingly difficult to drop out of, we're, we're sort of forced to help with the co-creation of data you if we choose to engage with technologies that use data collection either as a means to function or a means to fund their functions. So you are the source of the data and data about you and from you are the extractive source or resource of value, but you don't create the data alone. Data you is a function of your existence and activities and the act of someone else wanting to do and actually collect those data. So as researchers, I think many of us take the idea of data for granted because we use so many different types of them in our research. And there are lots of understandings of what data are. I think the one that resonates most with me in this book is thinking about how data are, or data creating data is a way to make information tractable. So data, in other words, don't just exist, they have to be generated, right? There's no such thing as raw data as Gittleman argues. We decide on what to study and then collect those data in order to study the things that we care about. We, whether we're talking about the researcher or a firm or whoever, have to make the world tractable through our choices. So when we're dealing in the world of computers, we're talking about the digitization of the world. So datification is thus referring to both quantification and binar binarification of the world. So when we collect data about forests or atoms or traffic patterns on a road, this is a different kind of data taking activity from taking data about or from people. That's why we've developed norms around consent when we have to have actively uh, we have to have people actively participating in our research as data, as research subjects. Participants understand they are part of the data taking and data making process, and the data are about them. So we don't usually think about these data as co-created between a researcher and a human subject, but that's really what this is all about. So, you know, part of what makes datification really difficult is that the data that's being taken from our activities are places where we can't help but provide data, things like internet searches or where we go online or how long we spend looking at various web pages when we use these digital tools. This is what Shoshana Zuboff has called behavioral surplus. 
It's the surplus that helps companies and governments and whoever else make inferences about people and profit enormously. So if we think about data from persons taken in isolation, this might not matter much. So it's one type of data maybe, but in conjunction with all kinds of other data out there, because data are all linked, uh, we can start making extrapolations about who we're talking about. And one study that I came across identified or, or said that, you know, knowing just two discrete locations of a person can give researchers roughly 50% accuracy in guessing who that person is. So these data are being aggregated to create a data view. And while record keeping and, and trying to classify people has been a human practice for millennia, datafication has allowed for a much more granular and extensive record keeping about us and in the creation of data you. We've also created a capacity for storing and collecting data for each and every one of us in a way that has never happened in human history. Finally, datafication and the use of algorithms to analyze those data are creating new groupings to the identification of patterns which create value through the analysis of data. And these patterns, uh, as I'll, I'll address later in the talk, are not um, ones that are necessarily explicit to the people that they describe. So I wanna to turn to a couple of ways that data rights have been talked about um, and, and to think through in light of what I've said about data you and the stickiness of data, why this is actually, uh, these, these uh, metaphors are not um, as easy to apply um, in, in terms of thinking about data rights as, tra as a tractable set of rights. So as I said earlier, lots of people talk about data as the new oil. And I take the point, um, there are lots of ways data and oil can be compared. They're both extractive industries that generate exorbitant amounts of wealth on the market. Companies invest a lot to engage in extractive activities of oil and data. And data and oil provide the basis for tremendously valuable products that are, that I should add, are extremely useful to humanity. Um, but that's really, I think, where the comparison should end, because the difference is who the source of that value is. In other words, where does that value come from? So data are about people, and those people are often still living. Um, oil is generated by long dead organisms. And so the effect of data has... Is, is real on people who are still living. Um, and it you know, changes their lives, it changes our lives as we live them. Whereas oil does not exert an effect on their source. Um, so when we liken data to oil, really we're treating humans as a means to an end of productivity, of product improvement for sales, what have you. And this takes away from the fact that the data are more than just economic to us. They are revealing of who we are. So having access to data you, again, gives, gives those who have that access tremendous power to know who you are, your identity. Um, this, this idea of treating humans as, as means to an end really runs counter to the idea of human rights, which treats humans as ends themselves in the process of protecting autonomy and dignity, equality and community. So from a human rights perspective, Thinking about data as oil treats, treats them, um, you know, as, as gives them monetary value instead of treating humans as, as means, um, excuse me, as ends themselves. Um, and so that's really a concern when we think about data in this oil analogy. 
Now, okay, maybe data aren't oil-like, um, but is there some way we can still claim that data that come from us? Right? Is there a way we can be we can benefit financially and be compensated in some way for our part in data? Um, you know, I this is a, a an excerpt from an article Will I Am, who is a member of the hip hop group Black Eyed Peas, and has been a huge proponent of this uh, of the idea of of compensating for data, personal data. Um, he's this is an excerpt from an essay he wrote, and he you know really talks about ownership of data as a form of empowerment. He thinks about data rights in, in, in other words, as property rights, something that should be treated um, in a way that people should be able to, to get something for enabling um, access to data about them. And it's a pretty prominent position that's also been embraced by academics like uh, the economist Glenn Weil, who has focused on how labor is reflected in data in addition to the data as, as a thing themselves. And I think this, this position has a lot of um, attraction to it. And there are some startups around this idea of making data property. And what, so why is that not a good idea? Um, well, owning and controlling data and treating them as property is just taking one type of right that we have. We, you know, human rights include property rights. And so if we exercise property rights over data, when we think of data as a thing or a a, a representative of people's labor, we're just looking at one facet. We're looking at ownership as a market relationship. But as, but as I've said in this talk, you know, I think datafication is not just about the market. It's not just about economics. Data affects our social relationships, our political relationships, and our relationships to ourselves and our self-understanding. And so, you know, a lot of human relationships are market-driven, but not all human relationships are on the market. And, and that's in part why we have human rights. So I think practically speaking, this focus on owning data also loses the importance of the algorithms that, that analyze and make predictions based on the data. So it's not as simple, I, I argue, as claiming the data about oneself for oneself because of the way data are being collected co through co-creation but also because the algorithms that sort, predict, and generate the value from the data themselves are sort of taken out of the equation here. So these algorithms are creating new groupings of us um, based on patterns in the data that they are sorting and analyzing. So for example, the category of 25 plus year old women who wear Lululemon pants and drink English breakfast tea and travel and, and various travel mugs who live near bodies of water could be a category that we may or may not select ourselves into, but an algorithm might've detected this as a pattern of significance. And this is the way we get made into collectives, not of our own choosing or awareness, but something that has been seen as a broader pattern through the data. So let me say that again, um, algorithmic or AI technologies use massive amounts of data and they create new human collectives that are not necessarily self-selected, uh, often not conscious or detectable across a whole swath of categories. And because we're not aware and we are not self-selecting, we are not uh, conscious of this new facet of our identity, of this co these collectives. Uh, these collectives are not significant in our lived realities, in other words. 
Now this runs against our fundamental understanding of how human rights work and in many ways, how we organize ourselves politically and socially as a species. So I wanna map this on to ways that we think about human rights. So first of all, many, you know, many human rights can be thought of as held at the individual level. We exercise things like freedom of expression as individuals, and we demand a freedom from torture as individuals who might be targeted. Even some rights that are groupy in nature, like freedom of association, are experienced individually as the right to join others in a cause. There are also categories of human rights that are called group rights. So these are uh, things like indigenous rights and women's rights. These rights arose as a result of the recognition that there are certain types of challenges that, that people face as a result of membership within a particular group. It's something about being part of this group that creates challenges that other types of or other groups of humans don't face. So these two major categories of thinking about human rights are, are really what we, what we tend to think about um, in the existing frameworks. And even though internationally group rights are, right, are recognized, regulatory frameworks around da datafication and human rights at the, at the global or international level largely focus, about, uh, focus on individuals. And even frameworks like the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation or GDPR are focused on identifiable data subjects for individuals. Now, I think we can understand the focus on individuals. And I think we can also understand easily the nature of identity-driven or socially identifiable groups. You know, some groups are self-selected, others can be imposed or beyond one's control. But nonetheless, these groupings provide some sort of identification, some identity, you know, an occupation, a religion, a hobby, a member of an ethnic group, a political leaning. And these groups have been, um, the basis by which we seek out our relationships. They are identifiable. The importance of these relationships can then form group interests and these group interests can make demands when necessary. So parents can demand collectively cheaper daycare or voters can align with their parties to demand policies and so on. But when machines are making collectivities based on patterns from the data, we are losing that ability to connect to autonomously choose communities. And because this is, there isn't a community to this grouping, um, this is a challenge to how humans have connected socially and politically in our, in our understanding. The algorithmic, algorithmically driven collectives really leave us unable to even know what or how or from whom to make demands from, let alone exercising existing human rights. And yet real harms happen as a result of data aggregation. Harms that are typically mediated with demands for rights recognition or rights creation. So the legal scholar Alessandro Montalero writes that we must change our orientation around rights to collectives, to thinking about collective rights or to clusters of individuals who have diffuse interests. But as a scholar of social movements and, and non-governmental organizations, I can tell you that this is not a winning formula to make demands be heard. Um, and, be, and when groups have diffuse interests, they might have very different orientations towards the collection um, and analysis of particular data, among other things, because they're not uh, communities in the sense that we've come to understand what groups are. So what do we do now? Um, 
in this talk, I've really tried to uh, think about what we're trying to salvage with data rights. And so existing conversations have been really about um, controlling access, um, you know, trying to think about uh, getting compensation for some participant or participatory part we take in the creation of data, recognizing our contributions somehow. And that's often around market relationships. But I think the current frameworks around data rights do not account appropriately either for the co-creative aspect of data and, and sort of these competing claims around whose data they are. And they also don't think about the importance of algorithmic processing that comes with that datafication and brings value to those data. So the stickiness of data, I argue in the book, needs to be taken to, into account when we articulate what data rights are. Otherwise, we're not gonna be very effective in thinking about individual and group claims um, versus the, the, the uh, data collectors claims around whose data they are. I wanna come back to this quote by Mark Twain because you know, unlike in his era, I would say the state is no longer the only incursion upon us, upon our bodies. So you know, corporations often called big tech, but really any entity that runs on data about us are creating and taking data you. If you substitute the word data for body, corporation for state, does the meaning of this quote change significantly? Um, does the corporation die if we choose date for data to be dealt with differently? Um, I think as a system, this seems pretty unlikely because of the pervasiveness of data collection and just how expansive datafication is. And each data you, we are all just one of a billions of data use. So it seems like these facets, in addition to the stickiness of data, really make it hard to claim ownership and to make a dent. But I don't want to end on that note. Um, I'd like to end on a slightly more hopeful note. Um, folks who are paying attention to, to Facebook know that earlier this month, its, it's stock uh, tanked precipitously, um, dropping, you know, broke records as to how far its value dropped in one day. And, you know, knowing, knowing that this happened and thinking about why it happened, we know that part of the answer was, well, part of the cause, of this fall was Apple's changes to its company's privacy policies with regard to ad trackers and the effect of the GDPR, uh, the, the used GDPR, both had effect on Facebook's revenue streams. And this is what in part caused this uh, fall in value of, of Facebook. So if we start thinking about data, not just as monetary, but something intrinsic to humanity, to our humanity. I think there are ways to reshift the relationship between data collectors and the people from whom they're collecting data. Even slight shifts in the creation and treatment of data can lead to big economic effects, which could then lead to impetus around how we think about and treat the data we collect from people. So thank you and I look forward to your comments.